Genesis 31. Now, who did Jacob go live with and work for the past 14 years? Lavan, Laban, right? And his name means white. Uh, all these names have different meanings and stuff, right? And Yaakov, his very name means he who uh, grabs the heel, the grabber of the heel. And he has, a, he has a brother, a twin brother. What was his name? Esav, Esau, right? His name means fully formed, completed one. Comes from the roots asa, which means to be. All right? And then, uh, so, so uh, long story short, Jacob makes Esau mad, doesn't he? And he goes on the run for his life. His mother tells him to, to hit the road. You better go back to my kin's people and hide until I sin for you again. And so he goes out to the household of Laban. And uh, he just kind of stumbles into his household. But he, before doing so, he meets a young lady. And what was her name? Rachel. 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 And he falls in love with Rachel. And he commits to working seven years for Rachel. Except what happens? He gets a little switcheroo, right? And Laban tricks him and deceives him even greater than what Yaakov is capable of deceiving. He deceives him and gives him instead Leah. And then he has to work another seven years for Rachel. For Rachel's hand in marriage. He takes Rachel's hand in marriage and then commits to another seven years. And so then we see this cycle last chapter, last week, we had this cycle of this sibling rivalry between these two sisters, Rachel and Leah. One was not able to have kids and the other was. And eventually, you know, they started giving up their maidservants to, to Yaakov and Yaakov was making some bad decisions, wasn't he? He was learning from the example of his grandfather, Avraham and Hagar. And he would, he would take these maidservants into his bed and he would children with them. And... Um, Long story short, uh, Rachel's womb was opened and she was able to conceive and have children and she gave birth to Yosef. And uh, then through that, we have what are now called the 12 sons of Israel or the 12 sons of Jacob because Jacob's name here in a little while is going to change to Israel. And they become the 12 tribes of Israel, which is the nation of Israel that we'll see further develop as the narrative continues. Then uh, eventually, you know, Jacob's fed up with Laban's games and his schemes and his trickery. And he's like, I'm going to leave and I'm going to go back to the land that my God swore to my ancestors. And uh, it doesn't go very well when he tries to leave. Right. And, and he eventually um, figures out a way to, to reamass a, a herd of goats and sheep using some selective breeding methods we talked about last week. And he hits the road and he takes his wives and all of his his wealth that he has amassed, and he leaves Laban's household. And that's where we pick up in the story in Genesis chapter 31. I think I've got that. No, I don't. But I thought I had a map, but I guess I don't. But then he heard what Laban's sons were saying. They, they were saying, Yaakov has taken away everything that our father once had. It's from what used to belong to our father that he has gotten so rich, which is kind of true, but also kind of false, right? He also saw that Lavan regarded him differently than before. Verse 3, And Adonai said to Yaakov, Return to the land of your ancestors, to your kinsmen, and I will be with you. So Yaakov sent for Rachel and Leah and had them come to the field where his flock was. And he said to them, I see by the way your father looks that he feels differently toward me than before. But the God of my father has been with me. You hear the faith now exuding out of Jacob? He sounds like a man that is close to God all of a sudden, doesn't he? You know that I have served your father with all my strength and that your father has belittled me and has changed my wages ten times. But God did not allow him to do me any damage. If he said the speckled will be your wages, then all the animals gave birth to speckled young. And if he said the streaked will be your wages, then all the animals gave birth to streaked young. This is how God has taken away your father's animals and given them to me. Verse 10. Once when the animals were mating, I had a dream. I looked up and there in front of me were male goats with uh, mated with females were streaked, speckled, and mottled. Then in a dream, the angel of God said to me, Yaakov. And I replied, Hineni, here I am. And he continued, verse 12, he continued, Raise your eyes now and look. All the male goats mating with the females are streaked, speckled, and mottled, for I have seen everything Lavan has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a standing stone with oil, where you vowed your vow to me. Now get up and get out of this land and return to the land where you were born. Now, remember, we're supposed to there's a prophetic element to this narrative. We're supposed to see the ultimate, you know, in the cyclical nature of exile and then regathering of the people of Israel and the sons of Jacob, aren't we? 
And so this like this supernatural awakening and, and, and sudden consciousness of God's providence in, in our lives and, and the people of Israel's lives and that, that draws us back to his land. And that's what's going on here. Kind of a prophetic picture of that. He says, I'm the God of Veda, verse 14. Rachel and Leah answered him, we no longer have any inheritance from our father's possessions. And he considers us like foreigners since he has sold us Moreover, he has consumed everything he received in exchange for us. Now, even, even his own daughters are beginning to turn on Levon now and seeing that he is manipulative and abusive, right? Verse 16, nevertheless, the wealth which God has taken away from our father has become ours and our children's anyway. So whatever God has told you to do, we will do. You see, how many times is God mentioned here? A bunch, right? All of a sudden. God's all woven into it, isn't it? It's like a picture of like suddenly they're, they're faithful all of a sudden. Their, their faith has been so enlivened. And again, this is a picture of the nations. They, remember when the, when the Israelites left Egypt in slavery? And what did they do? They plundered the Egyptians. They got their back pay from the Egyptians and then left the land. They left wealthy, didn't they? And so too will happen when, when, when Israel leaves the nations in the final, let's call it exodus, is that they will, in a sense, plunder the nations and bring with them the wealth of the nations. Verse 17, Then Yaakov got up and put his sons and wives on the camels and carried all of his livestock, along with all the riches he had accumulated, the livestock in his possession, which he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to Yitzchak, his father, in the land of Canaan. Now, Levan had gone to shear his sheep. So Rachel stole the household idols that belonged to her father. Oh, man. Everything was looking so good, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Everything was so promising. If only she had just, they had just left. Whatever, let's just sever our ties now and let's just go. Let's go to the land. But what does she do? She goes back, which is like a, a, a kind of a throwback to who? Remember, Lot's wife. Good. Lot's wife. And Yaakov outwitted Lavan, the Arami, by not telling him of his intended flight. So he fled with everything he had. It sounds like the Exodus, doesn't it? He departed. He crossed the river, the Euphrates River, presumably, and set out for the hill country of Gilad. Not until the third day was Lavan told that Yaakov had fled. Lavan took his kinsmen with him and spent the next seven days pursuing Yaakov, overtaking him in the hill country of Gilad. But God came to Lavan, the Arami, in a dream that night and said to him, Be careful that you don't say anything to Yaakov, either good or bad. Whenever Laban caught up with Yaakov, Yaakov had set up camp in the hill country. So Laban and his kinsmen set up camp in the hill country of Gilad. Verse 26, Laban said to Yaakov, What do you mean by deceiving me and carrying off my daughters as if they were captives taken off in war? Why did you flee in secret and deceive me and not tell me? I would have sent you off with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and lyres. That's real likely, right? (laughs) Verse 28, you didn't even let me, let me kiss my sons and my daughters goodbye. What a stupid thing to do. I have it in my power to do harm, but the God of your father, notice he doesn't say my God, your God of your father spoke to me last night and said, be careful that you don't do anything to Yaakov, either good or bad. Granted that you had to leave because you long so deeply for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods, my Elohai in Hebrew? Which is interesting. What are these gods? You know, sometimes the Hebrew Bible refers to idols and statues as selim, selim. Uh, but it doesn't, it calls them Elohai here. Let's keep going. We'll, we'll learn a little bit more about these gods that Levan was apparently keeping and that Rachel apparently wanted so badly. Yaakov answered Levan, because I was afraid. I said, suppose you take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find your Elohai, your gods, your Elohim with someone, that person will not remain alive. And Jacob's putting a lot of faith in his family, isn't he? So with our kinsmen to witness, if you spot anything that I have which belongs to you, take it back. Yaakov did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Levan went into Yaakov's tent, then into Leah's tent, and then into the tent of the two slave girls. But when he did not find them, he left Leah's tent and he entered Rachel's tent. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and she put them in the saddle of the camel and she was sitting on them. Levan felt all around the tent, but he did not find them. She said to her father, please don't be angry that I'm not getting up in your presence, but it's the time of my period. 
So he searched, but he did not find the household. And here the Hebrew is going to be the word teraphim, teraphim. These teraphim are very interesting. And uh, the etymology of this word is kind of mysterious. But we see these teraphim pop up time and time again in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, If you're familiar with the story uh, in 1 Samuel 15, you guys remember uh, the the daughter of King Saul. Her name was Michal. And first of all, Samuel rebukes uh, Saul for having teraphim in his household, in his home. But remember, David has to flee the palace. And Michal, what does she do? Anybody recall the story? She takes the household teraphim and she hides them in the bed and makes it look as if it were David sleeping in the bed so that David can flee. This raises all kinds of questions in my mind. Number one, how is David allowing these teraphim to be in this house and these uh, little household statues or gods? And it elucidates to me the fact that these teraphim must be very human-like. Do you know that Targum Jonathan actually says that these teraphim and describes them, it's going to gross you all out, but be ready, that these are human heads that are salted and encased with plaster and eye slits and mouth slits cut out so that candles and things can be placed in them and so that divination practices can be done using these human skulls. Pretty disturbing, huh? And, and you think that's a weird practice because we're sitting here in the post, uh, you know, age of reason in the Western world and we think that's barbaric. And if you go all around the world right now, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, for example, this is a practice that is still done. They will take the severed heads of their loved ones and basically uh, preserve them and put them in their homes. Uh, there is... Uh, practice in southern Mexico that used to involve skulls. All around the world, there is this practice of taking skulls of loved ones and preserving them for purposes of divination. And just because we are here in the United States of America, that seems barbaric and everything. But this could have been a practice back then. Could this be what uh, Rachel is stealing? I don't know. But it gives a little bit more context as to the... um, the paganistic ritual in the culture of Laban's household, doesn't it? Of these teraphim. We'll keep going. I know you guys are grossed out and you got to eat lunch today. Verse 36. Then Yaakov became angry and started arguing with Lavan. He says, what have I done wrong? He demanded. What is my offense that you have come after me in hot pursuit? You have felt around in all my stuff. What have you find? If of all your household goods. Put it here in front of my kinsmen and yours so that they can render judgment between the two of us. I have been with you for these 20 years. Your female sheep and your goats haven't aborted their young and I haven't eaten the male animals of your flock. That's because, you know, the male animals are what you need to continue the, uh, the growth of your flock. If one of your flock was destroyed by a wild animal, I didn't bring the carcass to you but bore the loss myself. You demanded that I compensate you for any animal stolen, whether by day or night. Here's how it was for me. During the day, thirst consumed me, and night, the cold, my sleep uh, fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my my father, the God of Abraham, the one whom Yitzchak fears, had not been on my side... By now, you would certainly have already sent me away with nothing. God has seen my distress and how I've been and how hard I've worked. And last night, he passed judgment in my favor. Levon answered Yaakov, the daughters are mine. The children are mine. The flocks are mine. And everything you see is mine. But what can I do today about these daughters of mine or the children they have born? So now come, let's make a covenant. Uh Uh-oh, don't do that. I and you, and let it stand as a testimony between me and you. And Yaakov took a stone and set it upright as a standing stone. Then Yaakov said to his kinsmen, gather some stones. And they took stones and made a pile of them and ate there by the pile of stones. And Levan called it Yigar Sahaduta. This is um, an Aramaic phrase. Um, it actually is closely connected to the Arab, Arabic word Shahada, which if you're familiar with the faith of Islam, the Shahada 
is the prayer of profession and testimony that you make in allegiance to Muhammad and Allah. So this is like uh, an Aramaic derivative of that. Um, it's a pile of witnesses in Aramaic. But Yaakov called it Gal-Ed. Uh, Gal is like a little hill and Ed is like time or witness in Hebrew. Levan said, this pile of witnesses between me and you, this is why it is called Gal-Ed. And also Hamitzpah, or the watchtower, because he said, May Adonai watch between me and you when we are apart from each other. If you cause pain to my daughters, or if you take wives in addition to my daughters, then, even if no one is there with us, still God is witness between me and you. So Levan also said to Yaakov, Here is this pile, and here is this standing stone which I have set up between me and you. May this pile be a witness, and may the standing stone be a witness, that I will not pass beyond this pile to you. And you will not pass beyond this pile to me to cause harm. So it's like a boundary stone as well, isn't it? May the God of Abraham and also the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. But Yaakov swore by the one his father Yitzchak had feared. So Yaakov offered a sacrifice on the mountain and invited his kinsmen to the meal. They ate the food and spent the whole night on the mountain. You see, when people eat in, in ancient times... They eat a meal together. It's seen as an act, a ritual act of worship. That they're coming together and they're reconciling at a table. And it's a form of worship as they eat together. Which is why Paul makes it such a big deal when he says in Corinthians, if people call themselves a brother, yet they are still living in unrepentant sin, don't even eat with them. So, I'm going to share with you a simple little truth here with this narrative. Normally what I do is I go through and read and comment and kind of parse out a lot of Hebrew words and share that kind of stuff with you. But I'm not going to really do that today. Um, I just typed out some notes that I'm going to read with you guys this morning. But this story is interesting to me because it's kind of this big awakening and this revival within the heart of Yaakov where he suddenly wants to give the God of his father's glory and be obedient and return to the land and rededicate his family and himself to this purpose and this mission and his calling. But then what happens? Seems like Rachel just undermines that, doesn't she? And she just steals the teraphim and puts them under her and, and leaves, which is a symbol. Those things being under her is a symbol of like of that being upon her descendants as well. She says, you know, <laughs> he says, if you find them or whoever has stolen them will be cursed. They will surely die. She seizes the fruit, doesn't she? And does she die prematurely? Absolutely. We're going to find out not to be spoiled, spoil the story. But I'm going to share with you guys a simple yet profound truth I heard this week. That the destruction of a nation or a people begins in the home. We think, oh, destruction of a you know, nation or a people comes from the outside, an invasion or whatever. No, most often it begins in the home where seeds of idolatry can be sown. Let me ask this question. What would be the idol that was under Rachel if Genesis 31 and the story we just read was set in modern times? What do you guys think would be cell phones? Hmm. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Hmm. Sexual licentiousness? Yeah, I could say that. What would be the idol if you were Rachel? What would be the idol under you? To better answer that question, we perhaps need to first define what an idol is. Tim Keller a blessed memory, who was a pop popular Christian pastor and author and apologist, he states in his book, Counterfeit Gods, that an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give, seek to give you only what God can give you. So essentially, an idol can be anything that takes the place of God as the most crucial focus and priority in our lives, whether it be through fear or admiration. People in America, we tend, to lie and we tend to idolize material wealth, possessions, success in business or jobs, entertainment, comfortability, pleasure. We tend to idolize victimhood and victims, trauma and self-pity. And we're wrought with these seeds of idolatry, aren't we? Through this exchange in Genesis chapter 31, in this narrative, 
Rachel's smuggling out of these household gods, these teraphim, the seeds of idolatry and lying and sin have once again been sown, re-sown into the family and the lineage of Jacob, haven't they? What was set up to be a clean break and a fresh start has now once again re-entered the cycle of seizing the fruit over faith. And as a result, we see the proverbial tree of the knowledge of good and evil weaving and growing its way through the family line of Jacob and his 12 sons. We see this fruit and the uh, the fruit of this tree continually come into season at various times throughout the history of Israel and the descendants of Jacob. Most notably, we see it grow and mature at the incident of the golden calf, don't we? In the book of Exodus, you guys know that story? We see it again in Numbers chapter 25 when the men of Israel begin to commit horrendous acts of sexual sin and deviance with the Moabite women. We see this fruit in the time of Judges. Judges 10.6 reads, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baalim and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, and the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Amorites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. We continue to find the evidence of this fruit throughout Israel his, his, history. We see it in 1 Kings, when the number of those faithful to the God of Israel dwindles down to just 7,000. And Elijah, an ordained prophet of Israel, is on the run for his life. We see this fruit once again in the book of Kings as the people of Judah engage in ritual child sacrifice to the Canaanite god Molech just outside the city of Jerusalem in the, the valley of Hinnom. And even today, as Israel is reestablished as, as a nation state and the multitudes of scattered Israel are returning to her, the seeds of idolatry and corruption are sown. What was an opportunity for a fresh start and a clean break ends up being more fertile soil for these seeds. And as the Jewish people return to Israel, sadly, they brought and continue to bring with them the idols of their past. These are mainly products of the Western world and include commercialism, sexual licentiousness, greed, abortion, and secularism. Sexual promiscuity and sin are prevalent in the country of Israel right now. Especially if you were to stumble into a nightclub in Tel Aviv, let's say. (laughs) The city itself, coined by some as the most progressive city in the world, will be hosting a gay pride parade later this month with an expected attendance of a quarter of a million people. Oddly enough, one can be openly gay and atheist in Israel and be welcomed by Israel by the predominantly secular immigration office. But if someone is caught attempting to missionize or promote a belief in Yeshua as the Messiah, their citizenship can be on the line, can be greatly jeopardized and even revoked by the state. So going back to Genesis 31, the seeds of idolatry can be sown, aren't they? The fruit they bear has exponential effects on generation after generation, does it not? So this whole story begs the question, have you had any clean breaks or fresh starts in your life? Some of you did recently, right? Sunday. If so, what are some small seeds that, if allowed to grow into maturity, would consume the generations that will come after you? As a congregation that identifies itself as being grafted into this family that we're reading about, the Commonwealth of Israel, per Romans 11, we too have the responsibility to audit our lives, our habits, and our faith. Because let's face it, we are not an isolationist group. That would be nice at times, wouldn't it? (laughs) We are not Amish. We're not ultra-Orthodox Jews who live on an island and in a cultural bubble. We're not. That, That would make things significantly easier at times. But that's not what we're called to do, is it? This, the fact that we're not an isolationist group, has been the greatest asset, yet the most significant flaw 
in our faith for 2,000 years. It's enabled us to spread our faith, but also it's created an environment where there is negative attrition of the people that come after us, isn't there? Reassimilation back into the culture of the world. We teach our families and our children to be in the world, but not of the world, right? Yet the world continually draws our kids out of our faith. We have positive attrition and growth through spreading the gospel of Yeshua, yet just two to three generations later, and I've seen it with my own eyes, if that, our children prove by their actions and their culture how they live that they are fine with settling for a cultural American blend of Christianity and way of life. Or worse, they turn their backs on God altogether and want nothing to do with people of faith. And in some instances, I can't blame them. <laughs> if DMF, Dothan Messianic Fellowship, you guys, not the building, you guys, right? If it does not get brought down by internal strife and division before then, we will see this pattern in our own congregation in the next 5, 10, 15 years. So what can we do now to not isolate but inoculate our kids from this? I want so badly to see the kids, the youth, and the, the small children, the babies of this room carry on the mantle of what we do here. I want that more than this to be a big, well-attended thing. You know that? That's my heart is to be able to come back here 30 years from now and it be a vibrant, Yeshua-following, spirit-filled, loving environment where there's still, there's still the gifts that are operating. That's my desire more than to have large crowds, which is maybe one of the reasons why I'm teaching this today. I guess is the reason why I'm teaching it today. The destruction of a people, let me remind you, a people and a faith, the destruction starts in the home. We think our main threat is from the outside of these walls or the walls of your home, right? And that's just wrong. The greatest threat to our faith and the faith of our children, the faith of our grandchildren, is what we allow and what we tolerate inside these walls and your walls. Now, Jacob should have been like, you know what, Laban, pause, time out. You're accusing us of stealing the household idols. Let me get with my people. Let me clean house. Let me interrogate them. And I'll get back to you here shortly. It's what, what Jacob should have done, right? Let's just all kind of pause for a second. Time out. Hey, Rachel, Leah, come here. Huddle up real fast. Look at me in the eyes and promise me you did not steer any of those household idols. I don't want that garbage in my home. We're starting fresh. Does anybody have that? Maybe things would have gone differently, right? Or maybe like Adam and Eve in the garden... Maybe he should have been like, hey, Rachel, we're leaving. Wait, where are you going? Why are you going back to your father's household? Right? Now, let me get this out in the open. I am far from being done with my parenting journey. <laughs> Having three boys still in the home and under my direction and care, I admit that I am flawed, still learning, and will continue to make mistakes. That being said, however, I have had the privilege to see and interact with more families and kids than arguably the average person. Whether growing up as a pastor's kid and seeing the behind the scenes of church discipline and drama and disputes or living adjacent to a teen challenge center where my parents poured their lives into as they attempted to wrestle people out of life controlling addictions and habits or becoming a teacher and seeing firsthand the products of dysfunction in people's homes, in students' homes, or serving here at Dothan Messianic Fellowship for the past five years in counseling with parents and families. I think it's safe to say, and I don't say this braggadociously at all, that I have seen and observed a ton. So while I am not a perfect man by any stretch, I'm not a perfect husband or a perfect father, I can speak from experience when I say that there are definitely some common denominators that produce a child and a home and a family of lackadaisical faith and slow assimilation back into the world. You guys want to hear what those are? And frankly, guys, my uh, curtailing of my words so as not to defend 
has kind of been diminished in the wake of these experiences. So I'm, I'm more willing to speak simple, loving truths today than I was five years ago, even if it makes you all uncomfortable. If I can, I would like to admonish you to practice three simple habits in your home that will stave off these seeds being sown, these seeds of idolatry being sown in your home. Number one, and this is the most important, listen close. Exemplify your faith and don't be a hypocrite. If you come here and you look righteous and you look pious and you do all the little rituals and you bow when you're supposed to bow or whatever you want to do and you go home and you're fake, your kids are smart and they're intuitive and they will want nothing to do with your faith. That's rule number one. They will turn their back on God at the very first opportunity they have. This includes having a sharp, critical tongue at home, a mouth that's full of gossip and resentment. Remember, Yeshua says, out of the abundance of the what? Heart. The mouth what? Speaks. This includes balancing your finances and making wise choices with your money. This includes spouses showing love to one another and, and, and uh, conducting disagreements and fights in private. This includes reading scripture, spending time in prayer. Be what you say you are. Do what you say you'll do. Or don't pretend. Just don't even bother coming here if you're fake at home, right? (laughs) Put your phone down. Interact with your kids. Engage with them. Teach them. Disciple them. Have fun with them. If you say you are against something and have a true conviction, then prove it by your cessation of support to that organization. Target. (laughs) (laughs) Allow your kids to see you being courageous and principled in the face of others being cowards. They will thank you for it later. Stand up for truth And do it in a loving and honest way. Because the fastest way to turn your kids away from this God is to be a fraud. That rhymed. I didn't mean for it to. (laughs) Number two, your child's brain is developing. And there's people in the room that are yet to have children or do and they're very young or do and they're already grown, half grown, or you have grandkids that are under your influence. Their brains are developing until their early 20s. Avoid at all costs allowing them access into the sick and demented world of social media via their phones. Avoid for as long as possible getting your child a smartphone. Now, every family and child is different, so I'm not going to dictate that for you. But I'm speaking from experience when I say that once a family issues their child a smartphone and grants them access into that realm as such, at such formative ages, this is just psychology, basic psychology as well, suddenly the little stream the parents were paddling up turns into a raging river that is impossible to traverse but becomes significantly harder. Social media is full of mind viruses much deadlier than any pandemic the world has seen. They infect and affect every facet of a human, both physiologically, mentally, and spiritually, especially those with such pliable and and forming brains. As long as your child is under your roof, you are in charge. You call the shots. Be empowered today. And know that your kid's not growing up without a smartphone and unfettered access to TikTok or Instagram or YouTube. It's actually one of the wisest things you can do. And what better way to train them how to be holy and set apart and different than the rest of the world, despite uh, little Susie uh, them coming up to you and saying, well, little Susie has one, right? Just be brave. One of the best words that you can teach your kids to be okay with is two letters, N-O. No. Teach them how to be okay with hearing the word no. Thirdly, and this sounds uh, super basic, guys, you would think, and common sense, but isn't commonly practiced anymore, apparently. In your home, 
sit down and eat together as often as possible. Then have a bedtime. (laughs) Families that sit at a table, face each other, turn off TVs, turn off phones, they stand a far better chance at facing the world and carrying on the legacy of our faith than the ones who don't. Fathers, listen, come home from work at a decent time. Leave your work at work. I know you're tired and you're exhausted from the world puking on you all day, but turn off the TV, get off the couch, turn off your phone, sit at the table with your family. You have to be the one to rally everyone around the table. Everyone, come to the table. The table should be viewed as an altar in your home. An altar where food is eaten in the presence of God and people are at peace with one another. Then, after you've eaten, encourage your family to work to clean up after that meal together. Then, go for like a walk or something. Or play a board game. Then tell your children, hey guys, it's 9 o'clock or it's 9.30. Go to bed. I know this sounds super, super elementary and basic. But there are people in the, in, the, in the family of faith who have not been told to do this. And it is so important to the health of the home. If you insist on having phones in your home, collect them and keep them out of reach of your children when they're sleeping. I know this sounds very intrusive in elementary, guys. I know I'm not, I know I'm, I'm not delving into the deep hidden secrets of Genesis 31. But... We can't do and learn those things while ignoring the fact that our family and our marriages are crumbling around us. We can't really have nice things yet. Now, I've been in many homes over the years where these simple habits are just not implemented, whether it's laziness or ignorance. There is one thing in common. Anarchy is prevalent. Discipline is non-existent. And kids will grow up angry, They'll grow up purposeless and they'll want nothing to do with the faith of their parents. If we want to see DMF thrive as a community and a congregation 15 years from now, if we want to see our kids, if we want to see our kids wanting to see DMF thrive 15 years from now, it starts right here in your homes. If you want to see your kids long for the kingdom of God, which is more important in this congregation. It starts in our homes. Your kids will love what you love. It may take them a while to get there, but eventually they they will become a fanatic of what you're a fanatic for. If a destruction of a people and a faith begins in the home, the opposite is true. The strengthening and the development of a people and a faith begins in that same place. They say the best time to plant a tree or a fruit tree was yesterday. But the next best time is today. Now, Adrian has a really good analogy. He says kids are like trees. When kids are young, just like trees, you can, you can shape them. You can mold them. If they're crooked, if, they're, if they look unhealthy, you can change that early on. You can you know, take a tree and you can stake it up and you can wrap some tape around it and make sure it grows up straight and strong. You can fertilize it. But try to do that with a tree that's 30 years old. Try to do that with a tree that's just 15 years old. It's hard, isn't it? Now, they may do that on their own at some point, but it's going to take them a long ways around, and they have to figure out how to do that for themselves. Galatians 6, 7 through 8 says, Do not be deceived, because God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whatever sows to please the flesh, their flesh... From the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So in closing, this story, as you know, does not end with Rachel hiding idols and Israel perpetually falling into sin, being exiled and scattered, although it may seem it ends that way at times. So too, The story of your family doesn't have to end that way with being scattered, with being confused, 
with exile. We have hope, don't we? We read God's word and it tells us that we have a redeemer. His name is Yeshua. He came to break the bonds of sin, idolatry, and all that stuff that separates us from God's presence. He came to break generational strongholds. He has broken the power of the grave. And in him, there is newness of life. There is an assurance of pardon. Speaking of a future time for Israel, and by extension, those grafted into her, the prophet Isaiah wrote in chapter 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. These sound familiar? To proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness those who are imprisoned. To proclaim a year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who are mourning and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I don't know about you, but reading through the past 30 chapters, 31 chapters of Genesis, sometimes I get a little bit of a spirit of despair. He says they will be like trees of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the renewed city. They will renew the ruined cities and they have been, that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. And you will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of the nations. And in the riches you will boast. Instead of shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land. And everlasting joy will be yours. For I am the Lord. And I love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among all the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are the people that the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord and my soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of Yeshua and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head with a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteous, and praise spring up from all nations. See, our story doesn't have to end with us on a camel, hiding our sin in generation after generation, smuggling idols, does it? God has a plan in all of this. Yet it seems like the entire book of Genesis has so far been a hot mess, hasn't it? It may seem like your family or your marriage or your past is a hot mess. But the desire of our creator is that we come to a point where we truly appreciate and acknowledge his character and his love for us. For some of us, we must first experience the broken and the evil to get there. We may first have to rub up against the wages of sin before we come to that understanding of who he is in light of that. Let me close in prayer. Father, we love you and give you honor today. We repent of our propensity to run towards what you call evil. Father, give us another chance to raise our families and to lead what is under our care to a greater appreciation and love of you. Forgive us of our hypocrisy and heal us. In Yeshua's name, we all said, Amen. Thank you guys for your attention. Do you have any questions or comments that you would like to add for Genesis 31 today? Yeah, great. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, Marcus. It's been a. Earlier today, I saw a commercial where T-Mobile was now sponsoring a couple sections of the 
T-Mobile, you said? Yeah. All right. So guys, listen. With this whole thing, we're in the month of June. Either this is God's word or not. Right? You either believe this is God's word or you don't believe it. Right? In this, it says that dressing like the opposite gender and sleeping with the same gender is a sin. You need to sort out in your heart, in your mind, you need to make a choice if this is God's word or it's not. I can't force it on you. But it says it in here. All right? Now, the spirit of this age is trying to diminish the value of this and trying to erode this and trying to get you to doubt this. The spirit of this age is allowing uh, the powers that be to use vast amounts of wealth and the systems and economies of this world to promote a particular agenda which says that those activities which I just named are good and to be tolerated and celebrated. And if you don't, you are a person of hate. And those powers that be that are pumping these, these large amounts of money into these corporations, the checks are so large that the corporations don't care whether or not they, they lose your money. We are facing an enemy that is so powerful, we need to be even more prepared to know what truths we stand on as the day of our redemption is drawing near. So this month of June, as you see different things, and you see things that, that maybe perturb you, and you say, wait, that's counter to God's word. Don't use it as an opportunity to, to, to build hatred towards human beings who are made in God's image, but use it as an opportunity to pray for souls that are lost, and that the powers of this world those with vast amounts of wealth who are under the influence of demonic realms, that they be shaken and brought down low. Do that this month, okay? And yeah, if you actually followed where your money is going to, you would probably be horrified and disgusted. And I, I'm not saying we shouldn't do the best we can to withdraw from Babylon and the systems of this world, but good luck. <laughs> Make an effort. But it's a lifelong process. We are in the world. We're surrounded by it. So, anybody else have a comment, question? Yeah. Welcome. Um, I see. United, we stand divided, we fall. And the enemy's purpose is if he can come into your family yeah. and get in and just get, just get in one person and, then, and just try to take your family down. Yeah. kids have this crazy thing, an annoying thing called free will. We can't control them, can we? I wish we could at times. Uh, yeah, and I will say too on that note, the powers that be that I mentioned earlier that have all this wealth and the ability to move around vast amounts of money, they want nothing more than to see the, the, the dissolution or the dissolving of the nuclear family. That is, that is what I mean by that. A one woman, one man as husband and wife, fathering and mothering children in the home. They want nothing more than to see that be completely turned on its head. Um, because they know, like I said, they're not, they're not under the influence of anything other than the demonic realm. And, and the demonic and satanic realm knows that a healthy family is a place where faith can be harbored, faith can be, can be grown, can be... Can be um, spread out into the world of faith in the one true God. So if they can dissolve that, if they can disrupt that, dismantle a nuclear family, uh, then they can, they can at least uh, 
do away with the soil in which the seeds of faith can be planted. So, yeah, it's a. Some people talk about conspiracies and all that stuff. Like, that conspiracy is absolutely true. <laughs> there are some large, wealthy powers out there that want to see those things happen. So, yeah, Chris. one thing to let your kids' friends into your home in 1987, when there was like four channels on the TV, right? It's another thing, I think, to bring kids in your home and do like a sleepover or whatever, when you know that you know, their parents gave them one of these and they have unfettered access to everything that is available on this thing. Um, that's a whole different story. And that's a judgment call that parents in this room have to make that I can't make for them. But... Uh, that's, that's terrifying to think about the influences. That come. And, and guys, I, I keep going back to this, this organization with all the money, organizations with all this money, but you better believe that they are creating algorithms and feeding information through social media apps that are a social contagion and mind virus to get you to think you're something that you're not so that you are not fruitful for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a, it's a grand conspiracy that's ultimately, the, at the bottom of it, is a satanic realm that we're up against. Because God wants you to be happy, holy, and fruitful. So, let's, uh, let's wrap up for the day. Thank you guys so much for your comments and feedback. And uh, we'll say blessing with the fruit of the vine and the bread.